Well, good evening. Thank you for accommodating me. I'm very comfortable. I hope you are. So we continue in Revelation tonight. Let's, let's pray again as we start. Father, we, we do pray for you to come by your Spirit and glorify your Son, glorify yourself as we open your Word. Lord, we do pray for insight, for discernment, for understanding. Lord, we pray in the time I teach, we, we, we think of the panel. Lord, we just ask that it would be helpful and edifying, and strengthening, convicting if need be. We, we ask for every grace as we proceed. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to say something about uh, what we've seen so far in the book. Chapter 1 is the introduction, and we have that the vision of Christ in chapter 1, introducing the book. Chapters 2 and 3 represent the letters to the uh, seven churches. And we saw in those churches that there's conflict and compromise. And and I, I just want to say again, those are issues the church always faces, and we face it today. There's conflict, opposition from the outside, and, there, and there's the danger of compromise, giving in in areas, compromising in areas, sinning in areas where uh, one fits with the culture of the day. So, you know, that's the, that's the context of the book. Chapters 2 and 3 are very important, right? It's, it's written to these particular local churches. But, of course, this book has spoken to churches throughout the ages. Chapters 4 and 5 is the, uh, the vision of the throne room. We have a vision in chapter 4 of God as the sovereign creator and the vision in chapter 5 of Christ as our great redeemer. So again, this is programmatic for the whole book, a suffering church, God reigns as, as the creator. And then, and then the basis of salvation for the church, of course, is the atoning work of Jesus, the redeeming, the redeeming work of, of Christ. So then, then from 6-1, what do I have it on the outline here? I think I do. From 6-1 through 8-5, we have the seven seals. There, there I argued that those, those seven seals uh, describe all of history from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus until the second coming. And, and you know, we, we, we saw things like, right, uh, uh, the progress of the gospel, wars, famines, disasters, martyrdom, and then the sixth seal, I argued, brings us to, to the end. We, we, we had this interlude in uh, chapter 7 because chapter 6 ends with the question, who is, who is able to stand? Who, who is able to withstand the great day of the Lord? That's very significant. It's identified as the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lamb's wrath. And, and, and I would argue the answer is given in chapter 7. Those who are able to stand are the 144,000, which, 
which I argued last night, that refers to the church of Jesus Christ. That's not a literal number. So, so th- it's our story we're reading about here, the story of the 144,000. Who can withstand God's wrath? Well, it's those who are sealed, protected uh, from, from God's wrath. And then the other picture in 7, 9 through four, uh, 17 who are those who've come out of the great tribulation? I argued again, the great tribulation is this entire age from the uh, ascension to the second coming. Who can come out of this great tribulation? It's, it's those uh, whose robes have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. So, so ultimately, those who are sealed are sealed because of the atoning work of Christ. So uh, just to note, in 1, 5, and 6, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he emphasizes that Jesus Christ redeemed us by his blood. Chapter 5, the whole chapter is about the cross, right? At this very important point in chapter 7, again, the redemption comes to the cross. So one, one thing I hope you're seeing is Revelation is very mainstream Christian, right? This is, this, this is not some weird book that's profoundly different from the rest of the New Testament, no, we're being taught things such as God is the creator and Christ is our great redeemer. And that, that's the key to uh, all of history. And, 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 and God is, is sovereign and he rules over all. So that's, that's chapter 7. Then chapters 8 and 9 introduce us to the trumpets. I argue that the trumpets as well describe judgments throughout history from the resurrection and ascension until the second coming. And it seems those judgments, the first four, uh, affect the world in which we live, the natural world. I compared it to Romans chapter 8. We have a fallen creation. But that fallen creation, is there, there's, a, there's a judgment uh, on the world. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, right, Romans 8 teaches, we see it in Genesis as well. Thorns and thistles, right, grow from the ground. So it's a fallen creation. There are judgments that pertain as a result. Then chapter 9, we have two examples of demonic influence on unbelievers in particular. So we have uh, two different pictures of demonic influence on the, on the human race. So that's, that brings us to the sixth trumpet. Then we have another interlude. So these interludes are on purpose, and, and this is where we ended. We ended with chapter 10. What is the function of that interlude where John eats the scroll? There's other things going on in that chapter, but I think the main point is that prophecy continues. So I, I would argue that the, the fundamental purpose, and I think we're going to see this in chapter 11 as well. So if we take a big picture, what's the fundamental purpose in chapters 10 and 11? What is the church doing? What is the church doing from the time of the resurrection and ascension to the second coming? Why? It's proclaiming God's word. It's prophesying. I don't think he's thinking of spiritual gift of prophecy here, but it's prophecy in the sense of declaring, declaring God's word. So what isn't Revelation such a weird book? Like, what is it about? Jesus Christ and the church witnesses to the gospel. We're in chapter 11, right? Well, but having said that, chapter 11 is a very difficult chapter. It's, there's a, 
There's a parting of the ways hermeneutically. I don't have time to give you other views. Uh, I'd love to, but buy my commentary. That's what that. So anyway, some of you have, some of you have shameless plugs. It's terrible. Anyway, um, let's let's look let's look at chapter eleven now, and um, we see in chapter eleven that 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 John is given giving given a measuring rod like a staff, right, and he. He, he's told, it's interesting, John participates in the story. This is about the only place at the end of chapter 10 where he participates in some way. Anyway, he's told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Why is this a parting of the ways? Because some think this is talking about a literal temple that will be rebuilt. That's a very common view. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But I don't think that view is persuasive. I, I think we've seen this book as very symbolic. And I think he actually helps us understand what's going on here. The temple and the altar both refer to the worshipers, to the saints. So, and measuring, this goes back to Zechariah. I don't have time to demonstrate this, but you, you could go to Zechariah and see this. Measuring denotes protection. So the temple, the church of Jesus Christ, we are, we are God's temple. We are the dwelling place of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And, and, and the, the altar, I think, is, why do we have altar here? Because believers are dedicated to God. So, so actually, this is very close to chapter 7 the uh, ceiling of the 144,000, isn't it? It's really the same theme. John, John likes to go back to the same themes, one of the things I hope you get out of this, in a recursive way, right? Going back and talking about that theme again, kind of a re recapitulation. So, but he uses different images and pictures of, of that theme. So the church is protected. But then he says, don't measure the court outside the temple, Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, I want to suggest to you that these are, this verse is talking about the same group of people as verse 1. And the holy city represents, again, the people of God. And, and, and what is he saying here? Yes, yes, the people of God are protected by God but they're persecuted by unbelievers. Both of those realities are true. That is not a contradiction. We are protected by God. Jesus teaches the same thing, doesn't he? He says in Luke 22, not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 16, some of you they will kill, but your hair will be okay, right? No, that's, that's not what he's saying, right? God will be with you God will be with you even when you're put to death. I think that's what this text is saying in a more colorful way. Yes, you will suffer. Well, these people knew that, right? They were suffering already. So I think that's what's going on there. Well, what about the 42 months? Oh, yes, so many things in chapter 11 come together here. Uh, many, many people take, uh, I respect and honor this view, they take the 42 months to refer to the last three and a half years of history. But you can guess by now, if you've been with me, what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that the, the 42 months 
And, and we're going to see 1,260 days coming up. And we're going to see a time, times, that's three, and half a time, three and a half years, the 42 months, the 1,260 days, the time, times, and half a time. I'm, I'm arguing that that's symbolic of the whole period from the ascension to the second coming. So during this whole period, the church is protected and persecuted during this whole period. This goes back to Daniel. We, we, we don't have time to look at this. I wish we did, but we're, we're surveying here. We, we could spend our whole night on Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, which is also very controversial, right? But, but Daniel speaks of the covenant being broken in, at half a week, and I think John picks up that language and applies it symbolically to what's going on in the church. And so it designates this whole time. Uh, I want to say again, this is our story then. My, my reading of the book is, this is not, you know, with the way many people read this, oh, it's, it's about the last three and a half years of history. Well, how interesting, how fascinating. But it has nothing really to do with us. But I'm, but I'm arguing that it had to do with the first readers. This was their story too, and all Christians who have ever lived. And I think that's just intuitively even a more compelling and, uh, interpretation instead of John writing just about the last three and a half years of, of human history. And all Christians who have ever lived, they're just like, well, that's, that's fascinating, but it, has, but it doesn't speak to our lives. Anyway, on we go. Uh, I am spending a little more time on this. We'll sp speed up on other places. Then, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Well, from what I've already said, you can guess, perhaps, what's going to come next. Yes, many people have taken these two witnesses to be two literal people, and that's a venerable interpretation. It goes back even to the early church. But who are these two people? Well, you know, is it Enoch and Elijah? They could work. Both of those folks never died, right? Then they die in this story, according to that view. So they get it after all. Um, could, be, could be Elijah and Moses. Uh, could, be, could be Peter and Paul. I think that's quite unlikely. Um, I, if, if I remember right, there were these English people who thought it were these people called the Muggletonians. Why am I even bringing that up? Because it's so crazy, right? People say some crazy things. But I'm arguing, surprise, surprise, this refers to the church. <laughs> oh, what a surprise that you say that. Um, but it almost has to be the church in my view because I think the 1,260 days is the whole period, right, from the ascension to the second coming. So it, it, this, this is a description of the church in the inter-advent period Two witnesses, picking that up from the Old Testament, two witnesses verify the truth. What do they do? They're prophesying. So I think John is saying, what are, what are we doing collectively? We're prophesying. Now, this is a very apocalyptic, symbolic section. The, these two witnesses are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. So that goes back to Zechariah 4. But if you look at Zechariah 4, the two, the two olive trees are uh, priest kings, right? So we really go back to even the beginning of Genesis. The church 
The church is a kingdom of priests, right? Exodus 19 as well. And the church uh, mediates as priests God's, God's uh, blessing to the world as, as, they proclaim, as they proclaim the gospel. So I want to say again, we are the priest kings. You are the priest kings, right? The, the, church, the church of Jesus Christ. And we are to be the lampstands, the light of the world, that present the gospel. Verses 5 and following speak of, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from the mouth. Now look, I think God could do that. He could have fire literally coming from the mouth. But we have Old Testament texts like in Jeremiah, fire uh, proceeding from the prophetic word. So I don't think this is a literal description. I think, I think all John is saying here is the, the, the uh, church, as it prophesies, as it speaks to God's word, proclaims, it proclaims a word of judgment to those who do not repent. Actually, you could check this out. It's been pointed out that the judgments described here are very similar to the trumpet judgments, right? So if we had time, we could note, oh, it overlaps with the trumpet judgments, which is another indication of recapitulation, right? John tells the same story. He shakes the kaleidoscope again. Oh, we get a little different angle from on, on the same story. What is the church doing? They're proclaiming a word of salvation, but then also a word of judgment. Verse 7 is the first mention of the beast. More on him shortly. The beast will make war on the saints and conquer and kill them. You know, earlier in the book, we saw that the saints must conquer to obtain eternal life. Now he says the beast conquers the saints. But it's not the same meaning. Words take their meaning in context, don't they? And by conquer here, he means the beast, I think it's the Roman imperium, the Roman government, or perhaps local authorities as well. What, what is the beast doing during this time? It's, it's putting believers to death. It's persecuting, it's persecuting the church. Um, verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Egypt is not a city. He even says it's symbolic. I don't think this is talking about Jerusalem. There are other views out there, but I don't think it's talking about any particular city. I actually think Augustine basically got this right, that this is the city of man. And it, 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 it includes every city, right? Every city that is opposed to God, which fundamentally, that, that's true of virtually every city in the world. You know, this is apocalyptic. He's not denying in every city there's Christians, right? So he's not saying everybody in the city is damned. But he's saying what's the the spirit informing these cities? Well, what did they do in Jerusalem? They crucified Jesus. But that's what is done in the city of man in general. So they kill the saints. And uh, for three and a half days... Uh, the people gaze at their bodies and refuse to place them in the tomb. The saints who are killed, three and a half days, obviously I don't think that's literal, right? I think three and a half days is another way of saying the time is short. 
In other words, why does he say three and a half days here? Because the time of the suffering of believers is a brief time compared to eternity. I think that's what he wants to tell us here. They'll gaze at their dead bodies, and they don't honor them. They don't put them in a tomb. The believer, believers who are persecuted are not honored but mistreated. And not only that, the unbelievers, verse 10, rejoice over the death of the saints. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Ezekiel 37, the, the, the dead bones come to life. I think Ezekiel 37 is talking about the resurrection. So what is he saying? Saints will be put to death. And the readers are saying, we know that's happened to us, but you will be raised from the dead, verse 11, and they stood up on their feet, and they're vindicated, and, and, and the Lord says, come up here. So, th so there we do have a passage about the resurrection of the dead. That's the ultimate vindication of the saints, isn't it? When they're raised from the dead, they go to heaven in a cloud. The cloud often represents God's presence. Their enemies watch them. There was a great earthquake. I'm arguing wherever there's a great earthquake, it's the end, right? A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. That's a symbolic number. Lots of people are judged, right? The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Some are judged. Some are saved, right? Through the work of these prophets. So what is the church doing in this inter-advent period? What are you doing? You're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Very mainstream Christian teaching, put in a very colorful garb and dress, but not, nothing remarkably different. So, so now we come to the seventh trumpet. By the way, we're at the end of history again. In a way, you could end the book right here and say, good night, but we haven't had the seventh trumpet yet. Here, here it comes, right? And then uh, in the seventh trumpet, they, they all sing Handel's Messiah. Well, actually, Handel got it from here, right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And uh, the elders are worshiping God. And what do they say? I think this is interesting. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Did you notice the other two times this phrase has occurred so far? It says who is and who was and who is to come. But he leaves out who is to come because he's come, right? So it's only who is and who was now because the coming is here. This is the second coming. You've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, Psalm 2, right? Old Testament all over the place, right? Your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name. So, it's over, right? It's the end of history. He could close the book right here. We, it's over in the sixth seal. It's, it's over at the end of the story of the two witnesses. And now it's over again with the seventh trumpet, clearly. So, he's, what is he doing? He's shaking that kaleidoscope, and he's showing us another picture of the end. But now, he's not, over, he's not done. He goes, I want to tell the story again from another angle. So now we come to chapters 12 through 14. If you look at my outline, I just titled that Signs in Heaven and Earth. I mean, another way we could describe this is 
We have, what we have here is cosmic, cosmic conflict. So chapter 12, the woman, the child, and the dragon. So first, the woman, right? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Remind us a little bit of the Joseph story. But she was pregnant, and we will see what she's pregnant with the Messiah. So some people say, oh, this woman is Mary. Some people say this woman is Israel. This is very debated, but I, I think the best answer is the woman represents the people of God generally, uh, which includes Israel, but also includes the church of Jesus Christ. So the woman represents the people of God. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So we have, since I already told you it's talking about the birth of Jesus, we have prophecies, I think from Genesis 3.15 on, that the Messiah will come. Then there's another sign in heaven, behold a great red dragon. So the devil, Satan, is often called a dragon in this story, which also goes back to the Old Testament. But the point is the, the devil, the dragon, is in some ways a mythological creature. Listen very carefully. I'm not saying the devil is mythological. Hello? Did I say the devil is mythological? No, I did not say that. So I said he kind of picks up on mythology, right? Uh, in terms of sort of like having a nightmare, right? And, he, and in a way, John is saying your worst nightmare is coming true because this monster is on the scene. And who is this monster? Well, it's this, it's this horrible great red dragon with seven heads, seven, right, with, with, a, with authority and ten horns, ten horns and, and power. He has authority and power. And on his heads were seven diadems. Well, there it is. There's, there's authority and rule, right? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This, this, you know, a lot of verses are controversial. Many people think this is describing the fall of angels. I don't think so. You can look it up. There's an illusion. I feel bad for saying all these things. Look it up, and you're like, you're going so fast. How can I look anything up? But you look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. I think that is the antecedent to this prophecy. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, the stars that are cast to the earth, I think, are the Israelites who are being persecuted. So I think he has in mind here the persecution of the saints. What, what, uh, of the people of God. So the dragon stood before the woman who was to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So from the very beginning of biblical history, there has been a battle, right, between Satan and God, so to speak. That, that is not ontological dualism, but historical dualism, right? Because Satan is not a rival god. There's no way Satan or the dragon will win, but there's a been a battle, and we've had a battle of the offspring, right? The, and, and Genesis 3.15 promises that there will be that battle, and that battle of the offspring begins right away. Cain kills the seed of the woman, Abel, right? And, and we see this battle as well 
Pharaoh wants to kill all the Israelites. He's the seed of the serpent. And, of course, this works out in history. You know Matthew's gospel. Herod wants to kill the Christ. Herod is a tool of the devil, so to speak, because the devil use, uses means. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to kill the Christ. That is hardly surprising. So she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's an allusion to Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Zip zap from birth to ascension. <laughs> That's a quick story of the Christ, right? But the readers know the story. And of course, the readers know, you know, John often talks about in his gospel, Jesus being lifted up, which is not just the cross, but also the resurrection and ascension, and Jesus being glorified. So I, th I think he has in mind here the cross as well. But what does he focus on? The ultimate triumph. The devil wants to defeat the Christ. We can think of all the ways he tried to do that during Jesus' earthly ministry, but he's, he's roundly defeated, and the Christ reigns at the right hand of God. So the devil has been defeated. But the woman, meanwhile, flees into the wilderness. Not literally, right? This world is a wilderness. The wilderness is a, is, is a scary place. They're not in the wilderness because of sin. She has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So, the Christ reigns at the right hand, the church, the readers, you, are in this 1,260 days. That's what I'm arguing, right? And what is God doing during these days? He's protecting and nourishing and watching over His church. Does it say that anywhere else in the Bible? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is John's way of saying it. The church is being protected. Now, next paragraph. I am arguing this next paragraph is the second panel in our story, and it does not progress temporally or sequentially. So let's, let's look at this. Now, war arose in heaven. So there's cosmic conflict right there. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Well, that, that's a quick battle, right? The devil loses. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. He's cast out, right? That ancient serpent. So that's Genesis 3, brings us back there, who is called the devil and Satan, the great adversary, the one who deceives the whole world. And again, he's, you know, he tells us for the third time he's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, now, now here's the question. Again, like people disagree all over the place in Revelation. When, when did this throwing down take place? Some people say this is the original primeval fall of Satan. Some people say this is a fall of Satan at the end of history. But I want to suggest to you that the, this, this, uh, this casting out of Satan took place at the cross. He just told us in the previous panel that this, he tried to destroy the Christ, and the Christ reigns at the right hand through the cross. So, so Satan, Satan is cast down at the cross. And by the way, we read that in John's gospel. Uh, maybe I should read that verse in John chapter 12. 
verse 31. So I think this is the same thing that we see in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And this is right before his death. You know, it's clearly talking about his death in John's gospel. Um, you know, I just want to make a quick comment here. John doesn't, John doesn't say a word. No stories about exorcisms of demons. Not one in John. But John goes to the biggest exorcism of all, right? He, get, he says, I'm not going to bother with the demons. You can read that in the synoptics. And John's saying, those are fabulous stories. I love them. They're good. But I'm going to the big story. <laughs> he didn't just cast out the demons. He cast out their leader. And when did he do it? At the cross. So Satan is cast out of heaven. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom over God and the authority of his Christ have come. Yes, God always rules as king, but now he's fulfilling his kingdom promises. This is at the cross and resurrection and the ministry of Jesus. Isn't that what the gospels say? The, all over and over again, the kingdom has been inaugurated for the, through the, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so the kingdom has come. And the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. So I think this is very significant. I, what is John saying? I, 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 don't, I don't think the point is fundamentally a literal point. He's saying Satan has no grounds in heaven to accuse the saints anymore because now the cross has been accomplished. Is this said elsewhere in the New Testament? Of course it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is John's colorful, pictorial, accurate way of saying Satan has no access to God. If Satan comes with an accusation, God just slams the door on him and says, the blood of my son suffices. Thank you very much. Or maybe he doesn't say thank you. Um, so there we go. And, 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 and so it's not surprising. What's the next thing we read? They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Yes, the saints must conquer and overcome. But this is the this is the conquering that lies behind our conquering, right? The conquering comes by the blood of the Lamb. So what, wh why is it the saints are not uh, condemned because of, because of the Lamb's blood? And by the word of their testimony, and they loved it, not their lives even unto death. Of course, the, the blood of the Lamb, the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ, also leads to a changed life, right? Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but, but woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? The devil has come down to you in great wrath. So I'm arguing, this is at the cross, right? Resurrection and ascension, so to speak. The devil's been thrown down because he knows his time is short. So I think this is the same period of time. The devil is cast down to earth, and his time is from ascension to the second coming. Now, the devil, I just want to make a comment here. He knows his time is short. He knows he's going to lose, right? He knows he's going to lose. But he fights anyway because the devil, evil, is insane, right? Evil makes no sense. 
you know what? I know that in my own life because sometimes I'm sinning and I'm stubborn and I even know this Holy Spirit's convicting me at the moment I'm sinning and I think, this is really bad what I'm doing. But I keep doing it for a period, right? But, I, but I'm a Christian. The Lord convicts me. But the devil, he just keeps going. It's, 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 it's self-destructive. He's imploding upon himself. But he's going to do all the damage he can in the short time he has. Okay, panel number three. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. So what is the devil doing in the short time he has? He's trying to destroy the church, right? But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. And as I read in one book, I think you're all going to agree, that clearly refers to the United States Air Force. So, <laughs> so obviously not. We are, we are, uh, if it, we read in Exodus 19 that God carried us on eagle's wings, right? He carried us on eagle's wings. It's referring to what God does for his people so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That's 1,260 days. That's 42 months. So during this time, we are in the wilderness, aren't we? We are not in the heavenly city. We live in the wilderness, so to speak. We are being persecuted. We, we, life isn't easy, right? But God sustains us. He nourishes us. He strengthens us during this time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. I don't think that's literal language. I think John is saying the serpent is doing everything he can to undermine the church. False teaching, uh, trying to persuade the church to fall into significant sin, whatever, whatever uh, he can do. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The, 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 the designs of Satan will not succeed, right? Then, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm going to argue here that the, the woman and the offspring, they're the same group. I, I don't think John means for us to distinguish them. I think that's a literary device. Now, you, you can make your mind up on whether you think that's persuasive, but I think we see that in Second uh, John. Same author, that he writes to the, to the lady, the church, and her children. But that's the same entity, right? The lady, the church, and the members of the church. So, so I think that's the same entity here. We ought not to think of a different entity. Now, you know, you think, wow, you're spending a lot of time on this, but I'm going to go faster in other parts. So here we come. Here we come to chapter 13. So the, so the devil stands on the sand of the sea. So this is a very fascinating picture. He stands and he looks out on the sea. Now remember in, in Hebrew culture, the sea represents chaos and evil. And he looks out to the sea and he calls up, he calls up a beast, right? So, so the devil has his henchman. And his first one is this beast. And the beast rises out of the sea, and it has ten horns and seven heads, just like the devil, because the devil's giving this beast its power. And it has blasphemous names, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So, really quick, we usually don't have time, but we just ought to read Daniel 7 for a second, because that's what he draws on here. Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has a vision, 
And we read in verse 3 of Daniel 7, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, no, uh, we can skip that. We don't have to read all of it. Behold, another beast, verse 5, a second one like a bear. And then verse 6, and behold, another like a leopard. And then as we go on reading in Daniel, then a fourth really horrible beast. But, but John, John puts all those beasts of Daniel 7 together. So I think he's clearly saying, this is the fourth horrible beast. This is the fourth horrible beast that Daniel's talking about. And I believe the beast represents the Roman Empire. Most interpreters agree with that. What, what is the beast he has in mind? It's the Roman Empire headed by an emperor. The great opponent of the people of God. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Many, many speculations. You know, when I was young, people were saying, well, is this John F. Kennedy? He was shot in the head. Is this Robert F. Kennedy? He was shot in the head. But I would argue, I think Greg Beale is right here. When, when did this mortal wound take place? I would argue that Beale is right. This took place at the cross. What was the mortal wound? What, what destroyed the beast? The same thing that destroyed Satan. The, the, the beast can't win. The beast can't win. The beast has been destroyed at the cross. And yet, here's, here's, the, here's the paradoxical thing. The beast has been defeated, but he keeps going for a while, right? That, that's what's surprising. The beast has been defeated, but continues to flourish. And, and, and people worship, worship the beast, right? They, they say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Because people begin to see the empire. And by the way, I think it's Rome, but I think Rome becomes typological of, Roman go uh, of, of human government throughout history. So, so the Roman government seems to be impregnable right? There, there are powers, you know, when, when, when Hitler was at his strength, right? Who, who, can, who can win? Who can, who can conquer this amazing power? And the beast, right, verse 5, blasphemes God. The beast exercises authority for 42 months, verse 5. There we are again. The evil human government reigns from the time of the ascension of the second coming. Now, John is not simplistic, right? He's not saying all human governments are, are equivalent. That, this, he's writing in broad apocalyptic colors, isn't he, about, about the dangers of human authority. But, but, but here's what, John, I preached a sermon on this once, and I later labeled it the state as an antichrist. The state, the government, wants total power. It wants total power. And do we see this? I mean, read the history of the 20th century, right? Read, read what happened, and it can happen anywhere, right? Read what happened in Nazi Germany. Read what happened in, in Russia. And, um, and I, I, could, I, I, can't, I don't want to be too specific, but I could name other countries. Let's just say this. There's a lot of countries of the world where it's very hard to preach the gospel because of the government, right? That's what's going on. So, this is not just, oh, uh, I, I mean, in my view, oh, this is what happens in the last seven years of history, but aren't we, aren't we glad we're not living in that period? 
No, some governments are better than the others, but governments want to arrogate complete authority and they want to tamp down on the gospel. Of course, that is what's happening. They, they, they blaspheme, verse 6, God's name and His dwelling. His dwelling is those who dwell in heaven. And God in His sovereignty has allowed the beast to make war in the saints and to conquer them. Again and again, John says in these verse, verses that the authority was given to the beast. And I want to argue the authority was given to the beast by God himself. This, Revelation 13 doesn't contradict Romans 13, right? Governments are ordained by God. And I think what John is saying, God in his own mysterious purposes has allowed these rulers to rule for a particular point of time. Verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Remember what I said yesterday, if you were here, the earth dwellers represent unbelievers. It's a technical term for unbelievers. There are many people on earth who don't worship it, believers, right, in Jesus Christ. When he says all who dwell on earth, he's not talking about everyone alive. That becomes a technical term for unbelievers. Well, it's very clear, right? All who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of, life of the Lamb who was slain. So, here comes the application. John says, listen to this. The world is against you. God is for you. But if you're going to, and he picks up language from Jeremiah, but applies it to his situation. If you're going to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive. If you're going to be slain, you're going to be slain. So what is he saying to the believers? You don't know what will happen to you. Maybe they'll throw you in prison. Maybe they'll kill you. Maybe they won't. Right? But he says, here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Hang on. Hang on. Main message of Revelation, right? Life's tough, isn't it? Satan's attacking. We have opponents. We want to give in. We're tired. We get tired. And he's saying, God's not promised that you won't suffer, but he's saying to you, hang in there. By God's grace, right? Hang in there. So the beast, the beast, the beast has a helper, right? The second beast who's also called the, the false prophet. The, the, you, you, we, we have here an unholy trinity, don't we? The dragon, right? The first beast and the second beast. That second beast is also called the false prophet. The, the, the second beast is kind of a parody of the Holy Spirit because he, he's, he's the revelatory vehicle, right? Speaking, speaking uh, on behalf of, uh, of the first beast. And he's also a parody of the Lamb, right? Of Jesus. Because in verse 11, he has two horns like a lamb. I think this is very interesting. Many interpreters throughout history have argued that the first beast is like Leviathan and the second beast is like Behemoth in Job. And one of the Old Testament professors I teach with, Dr. Garrett, I think he rightly argues that Leviathan in the book of Job is the devil himself. So... Now, I don't, I'm not arguing the beast is the devil, but it's devilish, right? So I think he's, these, all, all, all these people are monsters. Why are they called beasts? Because what do beasts do? They ravage and destroy. And, and you know, that's not always true. There are some good governments, right? But, but bad governments get in control, and what do they do to their people? They, they, they brutalize them, and, and they mistreat them. 
And, uh, you know, it, it can happen anywhere, can't it? Uh, sh surely, you know, sometimes I name specifics because specifics are help. Surely it's happened in Venezuela, right? The people are flying out of there as, if they can, right? There's some people who are in control, but the country, read, read, read what's happened there in the last 20-some years. It's, uh, it's horrific. So um, anyway, he, the identity of the, of the second beast, is, there's a lot of discussion on that. I don't think I'm going to focus on that, but he's, but he's also the false prophet and supports that first beast in a number of ways. I think we have a lot of symbolic language, but let, maybe just because of time, let's go to uh, verse 18. Here, let, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and its number is 666. Now, um, you know, people go a little crazy about this, right? I remember one time I was in a restaurant, and the change was $6.66. Our, 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 uh, the attendee at the table was obviously a Christian because she goes, this just freaks me out that that's the change. And I'm like, it's okay. There's nothing superstitious about this, right? If you have the number 666 on your apartment, don't worry. You're, you're, you know, you're not the Antichrist or something, you know? So that's not what's going on. But actually, I can tell you tonight who the Antichrist is. It's very clear. And most people haven't said it, but here I am to tell you. It's really simple. He's been a president of the United States. I'm dead serious. And his name is Ronald. Wilson, Reagan, every one of those letters, has, every one of those names has six letters. There you have it. I'm kidding. Of course I'm kidding. But um, so the, that we're, when I was in seminary, people figured out how the president of our seminary fit this. You know, I mean, so he, he was a very godly man, actually. But look, look, there, there are many debates the, 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 the main scholarly view out there is this is referring to Nero Caesar. It's a very complicated argument. I'm not going to get into it. That certainly could be true. It fits, right? It fits the context that it's talking about Nero. I think there's some problems with that view. So I follow what Greg Beale argues that uh, the, a perfect number would be 777. 666 is just a symbolic way of saying this This kingdom, this leader is very evil, so it's a, it's, a human, it's a human kingdom, and it's not meant to identify any particular person. You know, I want to say, uh, a very, an early church father, Irenaeus, wrote about this verse, and he guesses a little bit about who it is, you know, because there will be a final king, but I thought it was, I, I think it's so fascinating, because Irenaeus guesses a little bit, and then you know what he says? At the end, he says, maybe it's Titan, Latanus. He says a couple things. And then he says, we'll find out when it happens. <laughs> I thought that was pretty wise, you know? So anyway, you make up your own mind um, about what that is. We, we can't linger on it any longer. Uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, I talked about that last night. But I want to return to this and say the great opposition of the, saints, of the saints, but he zooms to heaven, right? And he says, here's your destiny, Mount Zion, which I'm arguing is heaven. So, so hang in there. Hang in there. Your, your future is on Mount Zion, uh, rejoicing and, and, and praising God. So that's probably sufficient for that. Then we come 
to three angels. If, when we could just look at my outline here. To, we have a call to repentance in verses 6 and 7. We have Babylon's fall in chapter 14, verse 8. That is a prelude to what's coming in the book. And then there's the consequence of worshiping the beast. And I want to read those verses because I think they're very important. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. By the way, I think that mark is symbolic. I don't think it's a literal mark. Uh, I, I think it's just, just, just as the seal put on the forehead of the 144,000, I don't, don't think it's literal. So, um, you know, you can make up your own mind on that as well. I taught a Bible study on Revelation years ago to the youth group. I mean, they were, seriously, the kids were afraid that maybe they got the wrong credit card. This was a long time ago, right? Or, you know, I mean, literally people came up to me during COVID and asked if the vaccine was the mark. I mean, come on, you know? That is not, that, that's just unwarranted kind of fear. God doesn't work like that, right? Sorry you took the vaccine. Hell you go, you know? <laughs> you know? That, that's not the way God works. So that's, that, that just does not make sense. So anyway, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, if they align with the beast, right? If they compromise, you know, you can have a seared conscience, but, but they'll know, they know, at least initially, if the conscience is seared, they know they're compromising, right? This is no accident. He will also drink, this is very sober, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and in its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Look, this passage is very important for a number of reasons. I think it clearly teaches that hell is eternal conscious punishment. They're tormented. There's, there's no rest for them day or night. I, I, I don't think it could be much clearer. I mean, some people say, well, the smoke goes up, but they're, they're annihilated. But he, but he says they have no rest, right? And they're tormented forever and ever. I, so I think those, those answers don't work. So why is this here? This is not written to unbelievers, right? Unbelievers aren't reading this. This is written to believers because he's saying to them, don't give in, Right? He's saying, and, and he's saying to us, have you ever thought of this? I'm sure you have. But, but the doctrine of hell is also for us, right? And it is also for us to remind us to keep persevering. It does matter if you stand with Jesus. They're, they're, we, we sense this intuitively. Life is awesome. And the choices we make matter. They matter eternally. This life is not trivial. The choices we make, whether to follow God and His Christ, they have eternal consequences. But when you're really suffering and things are very hard, there's a temptation to say, I'll just give in. I mean, what does it matter? Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. I can just give in. And what is John saying? Don't give in. Don't give in. Now, is this salvation by works? No, this, this is what it looks like to trust God, right? This is what faith looks like. Faith, we're not perfect, right? 
But faith perseveres. When I say faith perseveres, I'm, I mean if you sin, you repent, right? And you keep turning back to Jesus. That, that's what John has in mind. And what's the next thing he says? Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. So I, mean, I think I'm reading this right. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here's a call to endure. Hang in there, believers. Hang in there. And then he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed, it's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's been true of all the saints throughout history. That's true of my death and yours, right? We're blessed. Death is the last enemy, but the sting has been removed, right? And, and when death comes for us, there's a blessing that we will receive. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. So the Spirit is a spirit of revelation, right? That they may rest from their labors. So rest is coming for their deeds. They're a follow after them. So the saints, the saints will be vindicated. So he's saying, and we can encourage each other, right? We encourage each other as we gather together. And that's one reason we regularly gather together. We need each other, don't we, to, to encourage one another to continue in this race. Then uh, the last thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to uh, have a break, um, I, I want to say we have two, two harvests uh, in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, and um, you can look at those in more detail later, but I would argue the first harvest is a saving harvest uh, accomplished by the Son of Man, Jesus, and the second harvest is a judgment. So, uh, so some scholars argue that both harvests are a judgment, but I don't think that's persuasive. I think it's, it's more likely we don't have the same kind of language of judgment in that first harvest. So I think the first one is salvific, and the second harvest uh, represents a judgment. So let, let's pray, and then uh, I don't actually know. What are we doing? We're going to sing. Okay. I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Okay, cool. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray now you'd meet us as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.